Welcome to the City Beautiful Church podcast. Thank you for taking the time to join our family as we strive to live together in heavenly reality. For more great content, visit us online at citybeautiful.ch. Welcome, everyone, uh, to City Beautiful. Today is an exciting day. It's the last in our series called Piercing the Veil, where we've been examining uh, the parables of Jesus, allowing um, these um, amazing images that Jesus gives us to kind of reorient us back uh, to him and back to faithfulness to him, understanding uh, what the kingdom of heaven looks like. And today we're going to be looking at um, two parables that both have to do with fig trees. But I'm going to pray, and we're going to jump right into this. Um, So, Heavenly Father, uh, we testify to the truth that you're here, that you're with us, um, that you're for us. Um, Lord, that's why we're here. There's something about you that's drawn us into this space. Um, Lord, I just want to bless that desire uh, to to have this expectation that we don't have to have a faith that just exists on the rumors of what you did once upon a time but that we can actually engage with you today. We can hear you today. We can encounter your Holy Spirit today. And that's why we're here, Lord, because we want to meet you. We want to engage with you. We want to be transformed by you. Um, so, Lord, I, I ask that you would, you would bless that desire in each one of your dear children here tonight. And so may the words of my lips and the meditation of all of our hearts be ever pleasing in your sight, O Lord, our rock and our redeemer. Amen. Um, a couple weeks ago, I was over at one of my best friend's house watching Ancient Aliens, as you do. Any fans out there? Just me, sort of. Um, ancient Aliens is a television show in which ancient astronaut theorists get together and make crazy ponderances about all the things in the world that we don't know anything about. And they're in season 13, so this is a cultural phenomenon that's been going on for 13 years, and y'all need to get on top of that to know what's going on for real. Highlights include the government admitting to the fact that Area 51 exists and ancient alien theorists going, that's what you would say to distract us from Areas 52 and 53, which are also real things. Anyway, so we're watching this show. This is our Monday night ritual. And this particular one is about giants on the island of Sardinia, okay? So my friend and I were watching this show, and there's a guy all of a sudden comes on screen to be interviewed. He's about my age, and it says his name. I don't remember his name, and underneath it, it says, Giants Researcher. (laughs) And I turned to my friend, and I said, Do you ever have those days when you're wondering, like, is it really worth it? Like, you, you've put your time and your energy and your heart into something, and it, you're not sure what success looks like anymore, and you don't know if you're being faithful. And then you see that there's a guy in the world, and his title is Giants Researcher, and he gets to go to cool places like Sardinia and research giants. And you just wonder, what am I doing with my life? <laughs> I think if we're honest... We, have, we all have those moments in our lives 
where personally we feel overwhelmed by the anxiety, like, what, what am I doing here? What's actually happening in this moment in my life? Maybe it's in your, your personal life, it's in your relationships, it's in your work, whatever it might be. In fact, as I was praying for our community this week, I kind of noticed this strand within our community that so many of us are dealing with kind of this low-level anxiety. It's that really mischievous kind of anxiety that lives just beneath the surface. It's not so obvious that it's distracting you from your daily work, but it just slowly kind of weighs you down and you, you start to find yourself numbing to your own life because you feel just enough overwhelmed that you can show up but little else. And we started to pray into that, and even on my community group, we were talking about that, seeing how this kind of low-level anxiety that so many of us were experiencing was kind of numbing us to one another. And I think that that sentiment, not only is it, it, it true sometimes in our personal lives, but I think it also happens for us communally, nationally, and globally. If you keep up with the news, it can so often be overwhelming. There's all of these tragedies and, and mass confusion happening. Even last week as we gathered together in this space, we're still reeling from the, uh, the news that there was yet another mass shooting in Jacksonville, in Jacksonville Landing, and we had hardly any details, and we took this time to kind of to come before the Lord and say, Lord, I don't know what's going on, but I know this is not of you, and I know this is not your kingdom, so I'm going to choose to pray into this somehow. And even this week as well as having elections, and that stirs up all sorts of anxiety within people. What kind of country is this going to be? Which way is it going to go? Who's good and who's bad? And maybe you have those families where you just, you don't want to talk about it at all. You know, maybe you have the I voted sticker, and I'm never telling you who, you know? But whether it's this low-level anxiety and feeling of being overwhelmed in our personal lives, in our communal life, or in our national lives— we have these temptations where we want to give up, or we want to run away, we want to tune out. It feels like it's just too hard to keep showing up. Sometimes it feels like it's just too hard to continue to choose to be faithful, to first of all follow Jesus, but secondly to be the kind of people that Jesus is calling us to be. And so that's actually, that's the lens through which I want us to read these parables today that we're going to be looking at. And my kind of big thesis for the evening is this, that the kingdom of heaven requires of us allegiance to Jesus and patience to see it fully revealed. And I'll also be writing that down. The kingdom of heaven, the two key words that I want us to kind of carry with us through this evening, requires of us allegiance to Jesus, Okay. So where am I getting this idea of allegiance to Jesus? You know, we look at this word faith within Scripture, and it's kind of been translated in different ways, and maybe you've been taught all these different angles of examining it, but there's a lot of really interesting work nowadays where people are choosing to translate the word faith as allegiance. Because sometimes we equate faith to belief, which is kind of this intellectual assertion. Yeah, there's these statements, and I think that they're accurate statements, and that's my faith. But when we talk about faith in terms of allegiance— what we're actually talking about is every part of who we are being centered in the pursuit of someone or something. So even as, as Cole was talking about last week out of the parable of the Good Samaritan, for us to love the Lord our God with our heart, our mind, our soul, and our body, every part of who we are is gathered up together and is handed over to Jesus that we fully trust and learn to abide in Him. And I think that's a powerful and active way for each of us to think about our faith. That the kingdom of heaven requires our allegiance. We don't just dip our toes into it. We don't just tip our hat to the kingdom as these nice ideals. 
but that we actually surrender everything we are as a human being to find ourselves fully immersed in the reality of Jesus. But that requires a second thing of us, this patience to see the kingdom of heaven fully revealed, not just within our own lives, but within our generation, not just within our own city, but all around the globe today. And that word revealed, I think, is a really powerful one, especially to kind of set up the parables that we're looking at today. Uh, the word reveal comes from the Latin word uh, revelare, which means to uncover, or more specifically, to unveil. So in this series that we've called Piercing the Veil, we've been using that imagery that what Jesus is doing with his parables is he's unveiling something. He's, he's taking us beyond the surface appearance of how the world works or how we think God is supposed to be, or who we think that we are. And Jesus is kind of lifting that veil so we can see the heavenly realities behind all of this. Because we know that that's the really real, that's the place that we're choosing to live. And even in our scripture, we have this book called the Book of Revelation. And that's really what it is. It's a series of images, these visions that John has that kind of are the reality behind the reality, the thing beyond the thing. That it's not good enough just to speak of the kingdom of heaven in concrete terms. We need these dramatic images that kind of ignite our divine imagination so that we can really understand what's at stake. And sometimes we call the book of Revelation an apocalypse. And I, I love the word apocalypse. In Greek, it's very similar to the word reveal. Apocalypse means uncovering. And a lot of times when we think of apocalypse, because it's been uh, kind of bastardized in our, uh, you know, in our culture, we think of like Mad Max, and we think of like zombies, and you know, we, that, uh, apocalypse is just this terrible thing, like everything just falls apart, and we're just like all, you know, running around on like crazy motorcycles, like, you know, chasing after people because there's only so much gas left in the world, you know, or there's like zombies or something, which I, by the way, I think we're in the best position possible for a zombie apocalypse in Florida. It's flat, we have easy access to water, and there's lots of boats, and we have way more sword shops than the average state. Um, and wetsuits. It's very important to remember, if there is a zombie apocalypse, that you're wearing a wetsuit that's not penetrable by zombie bites. Um, Anyway, so this is so often what we think of when we think of apocalypse, but it doesn't mean this huge disaster and everything's falling apart and burning up. The word apocalypse literally means this uncovering or this unveiling. And so the parables that we're looking at for Jesus today fit into his apocalyptic teachings. And one of the things that I love about series like this is that we have to contend with what Scripture offers us rather than picking and choosing the bits that we would rather fit what we already believe. And I think if we're honest, a lot of us have probably avoided these apocalyptic teachings of Jesus because they just seem really obscure and not particularly applicable or helpful. But I think if we step into it with this expectation that Jesus is going to uncover or unveil something for us in it, we're going to discover this deeper truth of the kingdom. And so Jesus' apocalyptic words and actions are meant to lift the veil, to reveal the truth that we so easily forget. I think this is what we need today when we've been numbed and overwhelmed by the chaos of everyday life. In the Celtic tradition, they would talk about the thin places in the world, where that, that distinction between heaven and earth is so, it's like gossamer. You can just kind of see through it, and it's a special moment or this special place where the reality of God is so close that you can practically touch it. 
And Jesus' parables and his apocalyptic teachings become those thin places for us. So we're going to be looking at these two parables of fig trees, but I want to give a little historical context before we dive into them, or else they won't make a whole lot of sense. And so you've got to imagine that the, you know, the, the world as we knew it in the time of Jesus, there was one dominant power. This was the Roman Empire. And they had spent a couple centuries kind of spreading out from Italy and conquering all of what we would call the known world, which is kind of the, the piece around the Mediterranean Sea. So at the time of Jesus, Rome had spread all the way west to Spain, north to, to modern-day England and into Germany. They had spread east throughout the Middle East and a large part of Turkey, um, where Israel currently is, and then through North Africa. And the way that Rome would do this is they'd kind of come into, you know, some sort of foreign country and they'd meet the natives and they say, ta-da, you are officially conquered. The benefits are that you're going to get uh, some roads, you're going to get some money, you're going to get some medicine. Um, and guess what? You can even continue to worship your gods. It just You have to like kind of just you know, tip your hat at Caesar every once in a while. Just kind of pay him some honor and pay him some respect. And most other nations, probably what, who, the people that most of us are descended from, just kind of like, yeah, okay, we can do that. You know, that's fine. We're not, our gods aren't that interesting anyway. Like, we'll pay a little bit. You'll give us protection. That's nice. And this worked most everywhere else in the world. This is why the Roman Empire was the largest that had ever been seen un, uh, up until that point, except in Judea. The Judeans, or the Israelites, were a very difficult people group because they had this one god who wasn't shaped like a fish, you know, didn't live inside of a rock. He didn't really have a shape. He's actually the creator of the whole thing, and he stands above and beyond all of it, but he's really invested in it. And this God actually wants their exclusive attention. He says, you have no other gods but me, and you're going to worship me with everything you are. And so a, a fair chunk of the Israelites took this very seriously. And so when this commanding army comes in and says, ta-da, you're now part of the Roman Empire, and you can continue to worship Yahweh, but we just want you to also worship Caesar, they said, no, that doesn't really work for us. And so the ten there was always tension between Judea and the Roman Empire because Rome could never get them to submit. And so for several hundred years, there were always these revolutions that the Middle East really, just as it is today, was this powder keg of political tension, especially between the oppressive empire and this small uh, tribe of Israelites. And so Judea would not settle into Roman rule like everyone else because they already had allegiance, and that allegiance was to Yahweh. And so that really begins to set the tone for us understanding what's happening in the story when we're meeting Jesus. And as we've seen in several of the parables, Jesus has gone about his ministry throughout Judea and a little bit into Samaria, but he's kind of on this march to Jerusalem to confront the powers and the authorities that all evil is being gathered up against Jesus and his kingdom, the flesh and the enemy and the world. And we're going to see this kind of dramatic encounter between good and evil where good is going to finally overcome and put to death evil on the cross. And so the words of Jesus and the actions of Jesus in this last week of his life become more apocalyptic. There's this heaviness, there's this tension to what he's saying that's kind of calling Israel to account, to prepare them to receive the reality of the kingdom that's about to burst forth on the other side of the cross. And so we're going to be looking first at Luke 13, and then we're going to jump back uh, into Matthew 24. So Luke 13, uh, beginning in the first verse. Now there were some present at that time who told Jesus about the Galileans whose blood Pilate had mixed with their sacrifices. 
Jesus answered, Do you think that these Galileans were worse sinners than all the other Galileans because they suffered this way? I tell you, no. But unless you repent, you too will all perish. Or, or those 18 who died with the tower of Siloam fell on them. Do you think they were more guilty than all the others living in Jerusalem? I tell you, no. But unless you repent, you too will all perish. Then he told this parable. A man had a fig tree growing in his vineyard, and he went to look for fruit on it but did not find any. So he said to the man who took care of the vineyard, For three years now I've been coming back to look for fruit on this fig tree and haven't found any. Cut it down. Why should it use up the soil? Sir, the man replied, Leave it alone for one more year, and I'll dig around it and fertilize it. If it bears fruit next year, fine. If not, then cut it down. And it's maybe these kinds of parables and these phrases of Jesus that for some of you that grew up in certain church traditions just kind of make you feel really queasy. But I think if we put it in its proper context, we're really going to see what Jesus is actually saying here. And so what happens essentially is that Jesus has entered in Jerusalem, and people are coming to him, and they're reporting about these revolutions that are kind of popping up all over the place in Judea. And so apparently something happened where these Galileans had gone to, you know, the, the temple to worship, and the Roman, uh, the Roman army had come in and had slaughtered these guys inside the temple while they were making their sacrifices. And what we know from even extra-biblical accounts and these history accounts from the Middle East in that area was that Pontius Pilate, who was the Roman governor, was notorious for quashing any kind of rebellion that was to arise in Judea at the time. And so something had happened where he had sent in his army and he slaughtered these people in the temple. And you can imagine, that's quite the abomination for the Israelites, that that you know, the temple is the holy and sacred place, but that there's been bloodshed in there, and so their blood is mixed with the blood of sacrifices. And so these, these folks are coming to Jesus and saying, like, well, what do you think about this? Like, this just happened. And you, and you wonder, maybe there's kind of this, they're nervous because they're thinking, well, Jesus is also a revolutionary. He's standing up against the Roman Empire. What if this becomes your destiny too? But Jesus responds to their story with another story of disaster that in the town of Siloam, which was uh, kind of a suburb of Jerusalem, there was some other uprising, and the, the Roman army kind of came in, surrounded these zealots, these, these rebellious, this little rebellious group, and actually smashed them in the collapse of this tower. And so Jesus is saying to them, well, you're trying to tell me that these guys are sinners because, you know, obviously, like, their blood has been shed within the temple, but what about them? And they're all in the same boat. And he says, is really anybody in Jerusalem exempt? And when we begin to understand that, when Jesus says, you too shall repent and perish, what he's actually saying is, if you continue on in this pattern of rebellion, in the way that you've been doing it, you're going to get squashed by the Roman Empire as well. If you believe that it's about violent rebellion is the way that we're going to save our people group, that we're going to save our country, then you are gravely, gravely mistaken. Because Jesus' people, the Jews, were running headfirst into nationalism, this obsession with the state, this obsession with their people group. And if we just try hard enough and we rally ourselves together around the right people, then maybe we can actually set everything straight. We can win our country back. So Jesus is begging these Israelites to, to repent, to change direction. 
to stop going down this path that he knows is going to lead to their destruction and to actually come back to faithfulness to Yahweh and Yahweh's way of saving the world. Because Jesus' message was saying it's, it's entering into the kingdom of heaven that is the only path that we actually have to, to true victory. And the powerful thing about this is this is Jesus prophesying over his own people. Because we find that this actually comes true within a generation. He even tells us that. We'll look in a second in Matthew 24. He says, all of this is going to come to pass within a generation. And what we know is that there was one big rebellion in A.D. 67. So this is about you know, 30 or 40 years after Jesus' ministry. And the Israelites actually beat the Romans. And they, they expunged them from their state. And they reestablished their borders, and they reestablished a Jewish government, and everything was great for like three years. And then Rome came back with a vengeance and laid siege to the city of Jerusalem, and they completely flattened the city. They absolutely destroyed it, that it was almost unlivable. And all the Jews in Jerusalem were spread all over the known world in that time. And you may be sitting there thinking to yourself, Ryan, this is tremendously exciting historical context. But what does this have to do with me living in Orlando, Florida in the year 2018? Because sometimes we can look at it that way, right? We see these kind of like really obscure passages from Scripture that don't really seem to have anything to do with us. And so we want to go find the pieces that are more applicable, that help us to live our best lives now that help us to, to work out a, a struggle with a roommate or just to be nicer to other people. But we don't really know what to do with these kind of obscure passages. And as I was kind of praying on it this week and I was thinking about all of the things that are going on within my personal life and we, even within our world, this is kind of what I think we can really extract from this passage. That we have to resist leaving Jesus behind for other messiahs because they promise us the quick fix. Right? It is so tempting when we feel overwhelmed, when we feel like we're losing, when we feel like things aren't working out the way they should, when we feel like Jesus had some really nice ideas, but they don't actually work in the real world, that we actually begin to go and look for other messiahs, other saviors, other voices that promise us that they're going to fix everything for us and it's not going to cost us anything. Because this was what was happening in Jerusalem. There were, messiahs were a dime a dozen in the era of Jesus. Everybody was looking for the person that was going to rise up and was going to bring this sense of national pride and was going to fix the world. And so many of them are running around with these people. They all kind of had the same solution. We need to have a bigger sword. That's how we're going to beat Rome. We just need to have more national pride. That's how we're going to win. And so many of them walked away from Jesus because the vision that he gave them for what the kingdom of heaven was like didn't seem to be working. It didn't seem to be particularly effective. It's not how you win wars. It's not how you establish nations. And I think for us today, the hard question is what do you do when it seems like the kingdom revolution isn't working in your life? What do you do? What do you do when you're having that hard day? When you feel like you're wasting your life? What do you do when you turn on the news and you see that there's yet another mass shooting? Or you see what's happening in the third world? 
what do you do when you contend with the reality of our world today and to say, I cannot see the kingdom in this. God, where are you? Jesus, what are you doing? This is why it's important that we have history because we recognize that it matters. It begins to give us this template. It allows us to have this vision that more firmly plants us within the kingdom realities in our day and age. Because if we're honest, there are all sorts of false prophets and messiahs. There are all sorts of philosophies floating around in the world today that promise us the moon. They promise us the easy and quick fix. They promise us that we're going to just, if we just really gather around this person, this ideal, this party, whatever it might be, then we're going to finally find the things that we want uh, that give us that sense of confidence and pride. Sometimes it feels like the world is changing faster than ever with our access to information and other ways of doing it, other ways of seeing it. And so the temptation for each one of us is that we snap up whatever we need in the moment just to survive. But so often what happens when we do that as Christians is that we do not have the lens of the kingdom to have this careful reflection to say, what does this have to do with Jesus? How would he have me see this idea, this person, this party, this philosophy? And before long, we find ourselves further numbed, further distant from the realities of the kingdom of heaven because we have given up on allegiance to Jesus and we found ourselves following other little messiahs running around the country promising us everything. So in this parable of the fig tree, there's kind of two ways that we can look at it. Either Jesus is the owner coming to his own vineyard looking for fruit, or Jesus is the manager of the vineyard that's kind of promising the owner to give, just give me more time. And either way that we look at the parable, we can, we can kind of extract two deep realities about the heart of Jesus in this for us. Number one, Jesus is advocating for us out of patience because he knows our natural proclivity is going to be unfaithfulness to the kingdom. Jesus already knows that about you. He already knows that your temptation is to just listen to the latest voice on the news or on a podcast or whatever it is and to follow that rabbit trail. But he's extending to you patience that in, he can woo you back into his reality. And the second is that Jesus comes looking for repentance he said to these people that are asking him about these different rebellions, he says, you, you too need to repent or you're going to perish. You're going to find yourself crushed by the realities of this world. He even puts a point on it later on. He says, those who live by the sword are going to die by the sword. And we saw that come true historically for Israel, but we see that come true in our own modern day and age. That when we believe that's how we win, when we believe that's what victory looks like, we find ourselves less and less under the covering of Jesus and more suffering the wrath of the world around us. So what is the fruit, if we're to follow this metaphor, what, what is the fruit of repentance? It's to live the way that Jesus has called us to live. It's to believe about ourselves the things that God says about us and not the hollow voices of the world. 
and it's to choose into those things, especially when they don't make sense. I think that's the pain that so many of us experience, is that we read the words of Jesus, and we see what it means to be a Christian, and we say, well, yeah, it sounds great, but you don't know my life. You don't know what I'm bumping up against. These are really nice fancies, Jesus, but this is the real world that I live in. And we kind of relegate him to this place of nice ideals. But the fruit of repentance is us living the way that Jesus has called us to live, especially when it's hard, especially when it it requires patience of us because it doesn't seem to be bearing any kind of fruit in our lives. And so we find this very similar in the, in the passage in Matthew 24. Again, this is kind of Matthew 22 to 25 is Jesus' big uh, kind of apocalyptic sermon. And again, it's one of these things that we would just rather avoid reading it because it seems so abstract and esoteric and we don't really know what he's talking about. And how many times have we seen that, even in this series, where like someone comes to Jesus and they ask him a very direct question and they want a very direct answer and he just confuses them even more? You know, but it's, it's like that book of Revelation, it's like the book of Daniel, all these different portions of scripture where it's almost like it's not enough just to be concrete. It's not enough just to give you the simple response. It requires Jesus giving us these big images that kind of ignite our divine imagination and realize there's something bigger going on than what happens. And so in Matthew 24, we find his disciples coming to him with this question. It says, Jesus left the temple and when he was walking away with his disciples, came up to him to call his attention to its buildings. So they're walking around Jerusalem going, oh my gosh, look at this. And oh, that's so beautiful. And that's, I suppose that's mid-century modern right there. And oh my gosh, that's just so gorgeous right there. And they said, do you see all these things, he asked? Truly I tell you, not one stone here will be left on another. Every one of them will be thrown down. As Jesus was sitting on the Mount of Olives, the disciples came to him privately. Tell us, they said. When will this happen? And what will be the sign of your coming and of the end of the age? And again, some of this language is very triggering to us because we've grown up in church traditions that have taken language like this and have misappropriated it. That have, 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 because it's not put in its proper context, it's kind of blown out of proportion and created this entirely different theology that's not the theology of the kingdom. And I think it's important that we understand what the end of the age and the coming of the age really means. So in this chapter, Jesus kind of launches into kind of prophetic mode, and he begins to speak of all these images. He says there's going to be wars and rumors of wars and earthquakes, and nations are going to rise up against nations, and you're going to see the abomination in the temple, this kind of absolutely horrible thing happening in the place of worship. And he kind of speaks in these very grandiose statements. And there's this very key point. He says, now when you see all of this, I want you to run to the hills. When you see all of this happening in Jerusalem, I want you to take off. And it's better for you to kind of find yourself out there with practically nothing that is for you to stick around in this city to find out what's about to happen. And it's fascinating because, again, when we go to historical documents, we find that came true. When, the, when this rebellion kind of launched in Jerusalem in 67, all the Jewish Christians took off and they ran and hid in the hills. And they actually saved themselves from the destruction of Jerusalem. And it's really important. So as we're reading this, just kind of keep that in mind that that all of these signs that Jesus is giving them were meant for for that generation specifically. And they all came true when the city of Jerusalem and, of course, the temple was destroyed in A.D. 70. So we're going to continue reading in verse 
And we're going to skip ahead to verse 27. So Jesus says, As lightning that comes from the east is visible even in the west, so will be the coming of the Son of Man. Wherever there's a carcass, there the vultures will gather. Immediately after the distress of those days, the sun will be darkened and the moon will not give its light. The stars will fall from the sky and the heavenly bodies will be shaken. Two quotes from Isaiah. Then will appear the sign of the Son of Man in heaven. And then all the peoples of the earth will mourn when they see the Son of Man coming on the clouds of heaven with power and great glory. And he will send his angels with a loud trumpet call. And they will gather his elect from the four winds from one end of the heavens to the other. Now learn this lesson from the fig tree. As soon as its twigs get tender and its leaves come out, you know that summer is near. Even so, when you see all of these things, you will know that it is near right at the door. And this is the phrase that you need to get this passage of Scripture. Truly, I tell you, this generation will certainly not pass away until all these things have happened. Heaven and earth will pass away, but my words will never pass away. And so this amazing apocalyptic vision from Jesus happens within a generation. And he actually prepared his faithful to know what to do when it came. And we have this imagery of Jesus walking around the city of Jerusalem, weeping because he knows what's about to happen, but he can't get his own people group to repent, to change their ways, to change how they think, to become back to faithfulness to God, and to learn that the only way of saving themselves was the new reality of the kingdom. And within the era of Peter and Paul and, and the disciples and the churches that they plant, they come to see their precious Jerusalem destroyed and the temple laid flat. And within this passage, there's this really fascinating phrase, the Son of Man. One of Jesus' favorite ways of describing himself. And it actually comes from Daniel, which was another uh, apocalyptic book in Scripture. Daniel was really popular in the first century because they were looking for signs of how God was going to deliver them. Um, you know, Daniel was kind of like the, the purpose-driven life of the first century, you know. Everybody had a copy of it. And they're just digging through it, trying to figure out what does all this crazy imagery mean. And in Daniel 7, there's this image of these different beasts that come out of the ocean, these kind of, and they're these symbols for the empires of the day that are rising up to challenge the kingdom of God, and they're going to take over, but God kind of whips every single one of these monsters. And then it begins to speak of this son of man. It says in, uh, in Daniel 7, verses 13 and 14, In my vision at night I looked, and there before me was one like a son of man, coming with the clouds of heaven. He approached the Ancient of Days. And was led into his presence. He was given authority, glory, and sovereign power. All nations and peoples of every language worshipped him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion that will not pass away. And his kingdom is one that will never be destroyed. And sometimes when we think about that coming in the clouds, we think that it's God coming from heaven to earth. But if we actually read this properly in Daniel... It's the Son of Man kind of being surrounded by the clouds, and he goes from earth to heaven because he's actually approaching the throne room of God, where he sits down, and he begins to rule from that place. And so what Jesus is really prophesying here, far less than it being about his second coming, although that is something that we believe as Christians, it's more about Jesus' resurrection and ascension. 
that after Jesus overcomes evil on the cross, he will be resurrected at the first fruits of how God is rescuing the world in his way. And that Jesus ascends to the throne, to the right hand of God, and it's from that place that he rules right now in this very moment. When he says this, this appearing, the Greek word perusia, it's this royal appearing. It's like when the king was entering into the city and everybody's like losing their minds because he's come in from victory and they can't believe it. It's the best thing ever. That's what he's talking about. When the Son of Man comes in the clouds of heaven, when he's been resurrected, he shows that he is who God has said he is. That God will give us these three signs that Jesus and Jesus alone is the deliverance for mankind. First of all, being that his resurrection and his ascension. Secondly, what he speaks about at the beginning of this chapter being the destruction of the temple. And not just the physical building, but actually the whole temple way of doing things. The whole temple way of doing religion. The whole temple way of relating to God. That in the new reality of God, you are the temple. Your body is the temple. It's not about a building. It's not about sacrifices. It's about you now being the place where God dwells. And third and finally, it's about the good news of the victory of Jesus over evil spreading like a wildfire. And we see this reality when Jerusalem, just before it's destroyed, that the Christians are sent out all over the world to preach the good news of Jesus. And as one of the Christian, early Christian fathers, Tertullian, says, it's the blood of the martyrs that becomes the seed of the church. That wherever Christians went and demonstrated this radical, counterintuitive way of the kingdom, this nonviolent uh, way of the kingdom, they suffered persecution and yet stayed firm. It was through that, it was the best demonstration. There's actually another way to do humanity. There's another way to rescue the world. And it's not taking up sword against sword, but it's actually bearing all things with this radical love. And so this is why Jesus is more than just a great spiritual teacher. Jesus didn't come just to give us good advice, although there's some in there. A lot of it's really confusing and probably actually isn't that helpful for your daily life. And Jesus isn't just here to show us what it means to be human being in God's way, although that's also true. This apocalyptic vision that he gives us is to say Jesus is what God looks like. This is the heart of the Father on display. That Jesus on the cross is the best demonstration of what God is like. And we will never get a better vision than that. Everything else is secondary. So what is this, again, what does this speak to us 2,000 years later in 2018? How do we enter into these strange images and the, the strange language of Jesus? Well, I want to say to you this. Welcome to the apocalypse. You made it. You're here. This is it right now. The coming age, the end, the end of the world, you're living in it right now, and we have been for 2,000 years. Because it's been revealed. The heart of the Father has been revealed in the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus, and it's changed everything. Jesus is Lord but not everyone realizes it yet. We're not waiting for God to realize that everything on earth is total chaos and brokenness. So eventually he goes, oh my gosh, I'm so sorry, I totally forgot. And then he comes back and he fixes it all. Jesus isn't like 
up in heaven, totally distracted by all of the angels playing harps, and, you know, we have to do the rain dance to get him to pay attention to us so we can do really well on a test. Like, Jesus, right now, is Lord, and he's sitting at the right hand of the Father, and he's interceding for you, and he's advocating for you right stinking now. He's king. He's the king over all of it. And he's living, and he's active, and he said, I promise that I will never leave you nor forsake you. I will always be with you. And that is true. But not everybody else knows that yet. That you and I, those who claim that Jesus is Lord, we are the ones who are actively and consciously living under his rule right now on this side of the resurrection. This is the dramatic unveiling where the veil has been lifted for us, we see the thing behind the thing. We see the reality beyond the reality because we have been touched by the reality of Jesus and it has rescued us. It's opened our eyes to what's really going on. Number one, that we recognize that God is on the move, that God is rescuing the world even now, even on the hard days, even on the days that it doesn't really feel like it's happening. We see it historically. We witness to it personally that God is on the move. We recognize that we are his children, that we have been given worth, that we have been given value, that we matter. And not only do we matter, but we actually get to reveal to other human beings that they matter, that they have worth, that they have value, that the Father is crazy about them, that the Father wants them to experience the reality of his rule. We believe that there is a plan at work even now. And so how do you and I face the world as the ones who actively recognize his rule today? It begins in the place of prayer, and it continues with the place of telling the truth with our thoughts, our words, and our deeds, even when it doesn't make sense, especially when it doesn't make sense, on the days that are really hard. When who Jesus is calling you to be just seems too far out of your reach, that's when it really matters. But it has to begin with you and I having this renewed vision for what the kingdom is really like. Because that's the only way that we're going to develop the patience and the fortitude to live into that kingdom every day so that we can welcome others into it. This has been the City Beautiful Church podcast. To stay connected, follow us on social everywhere at City Beautiful CH. We hope you join us again soon.